Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to the second season of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX Technologies, and I'm Todd Buchholz, Michelle Dennity's co-host this season. Over the coming weeks, we will continue to examine the crisis of capitalism, and whether or not smarter markets is the anecdote to a more inclusive and sustainable future. My guest for my inaugural episode of the podcast is Stefan Wheeler, Head of Markets Analysis at Expo Solutions. Expo is the trading and origination arm of Expo Group, Switzerland's largest energy utility and a major player in the European energy space. Stefan has over 20 years' experience in the commodity space, including roles as Executive Director and Petroleum Analysis at Goldman Sachs, and Head of Research for New York-based commodities hedge fund BBL Commodities. He currently sits on the Board of Directors of Gold Money, a company co-founded by Josh Crum, CEO of ABEX, and one of the largest precious metals custodians in the world. My interview with Stefan Wheeler is coming up next. And now, back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. With me today is Stefan Wheeler, Head of Markets Analysis at Axpo Solutions. Stefan, where are you joining us from today? Um, I'm joining you from Zurich, Switzerland. Hi, Todd. Good to be with you, and thanks for being here. So what is it like in Zurich today? We all obviously have been fighting COVID for the last year. It's uh, the opportunity to speak to anyone in person has been so rare. So anytime we get someone on the air, we've got to take advantage of that and ask, what is going on? How safe are the streets? How open is Zurich at the moment? And what are the prospects for a recovery economically and socially? How is it looking in Switzerland at this moment? At the moment, so since this Monday, they actually reopened quite a bit. The restaurants are open for outside dining. The inside is still closed. Schools have not been closed um, in this second and third wave. They were briefly closed in the, in the first wave last year. Yeah, I think life is returning right now. Switzerland has chosen like a, a middle way with, we had lockdowns, but probably not as extreme as our neighbors. So Switzerland always tried to probably leave as much freedom as they could, given that there is a lockdown. So people traveled within Switzerland a lot for the past year, but traveling abroad has been difficult and restaurants were closed for, for many months now for the winter. Now that restaurants and offices presumably will be opening up, do you see that there's going to be a V-shaped rebound in the economy, but then also in the energy markets? Are we going to see a bounce back? Clearly, oil prices have come back some. Is this just the beginning of fossil fuel prices rebounding to where they were prior to COVID? Or has something happened in the last year that perhaps will be changing behavior as we go forward? Yeah, I think that's many questions packed into one. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of address uh, the individual questions. V-shaped recovery, I think we have to differentiate between V-shaped recovery in just broad economic terms, so economic activity and recovery for demand for certain goods. And that certainly includes oil and other energy commodities. The oil market in particular was was hit extremely hard. The demand hit last year in 2020, particularly during the first uh, wave of lockdowns, February, March, April, was really extreme. There was no other commodity where demand was hit as hard as the oil markets. To give you just an idea, demand 
at the peak of the lockdowns was down globally probably around 20-25%, so 20-25 million barrels a day. And if you compare that to previous demand impacts from, let's say, the great financial crisis in 2008-2009, that was just 3 million barrels. So oil demand was hit particularly hard because the transportation sector was hit that hard, much more probably than the broader economy. And as the lockdowns of the first wave ended, that demand recovered relatively quickly around the world, with probably the notable exception of Europe, where demand has been relatively muted since last year. But demand has recovered exceptionally well in Asia, particularly in China, where it's actually higher now than it was in 19. And it has recovered quite well now in the US because the US is progressing much faster than Europe with the vaccination program. But there are pockets of demand where it's still down, especially the air traffic is down a lot. So jet fuel demand is probably still the most impacted, but demand for other fuels, transportation fuels, actually has recovered quite a lot. And the reason why prices have recovered so much is that this largest hit in demand on record has also met with the largest supply cut on record. So in 2008-9, when OPEC came together, when oil prices crashed from $150 down to 30, OPEC came together and decided for a very large cut. But they only had to meet 3 million barrels a day demand decline, and they, they cut less than that. But this time they came together and they cut 10 million barrels a day. And then you had also for purely economical reasons, supply was coming off in non-OPEC nations as well, particularly in the US, where the shale oil producers really started to struggle. So that supply was also off two, two and a half million barrels a day, and that's actually still down. So the re price recovery is probably more because of those supply cuts outweighing the demand recovery. Demand is still nowhere near back to where we started. But we're seeing it in the uh, regions where cases have gone down and the lockdowns have been completely removed or almost completely removed. Their demand actually has recovered extremely fast. Stefan, as you point out, the discipline from the supply side has been impressive and, and the cuts. But doesn't that also mean that there is tremendous potential supply that could come online at any time, whether as a result of cartels breaking down and agreements breaking down within OPEC or oil rigs coming back online. I think the, the rig count is probably off 50% from its peak in 2013, 2014. Doesn't this put a lid on the upper end of oil? Because to the extent that it rises into the 60s or 70s or 80s or beyond, there could just be a flood that comes on to fulfill the increase in demand. Is that not the case? I think short term, that's absolutely the case. So at least until the end of this year, there's enough spare capacity to meet any demand gap that could arise. At the moment, OPEC is looking at inventories still well above the five-year average. So OPEC is determined actually to bring inventories down to normal level before they really start increasing. And it's true that even if demand comes back, it probably doesn't go back right to the old peaks because demand in some areas probably will be permanently impacted. So, for example, demand in the airline sector probably will suffer from reduced business travel for quite some time. I'm not sure how fast that recovers. So it is the same story that probably office space will be plenty for a long time because companies have figured out that their employees actually don't need an office space as much as they thought before. And so the same companies probably also realized that maybe their employees don't need to travel for business as much as before. So there will be some impact on that. And then you also have to think about stock markets don't seem to reflect this, but there is a permanent damage done to the economy from the lockdowns. A lot of businesses closed permanently. Still, a lot of people are unemployed. So unemployed people don't drive as much. So it will take some time for demand, especially in the Western economies, to come back to peak demand. And I don't expect demand, for example, in the European economies ever to come back to the previous highs. That said, 
there is also a permanent damage to the supply side. And I think that's where it's getting interesting. It's true that the whole market was balanced with OPEC taking off supply in a controlled way. And all that supply can be brought back whenever they want. And there is also the prospect of Iranian supply coming back should the Biden administration come to some sort of agreement to resume the nuclear accord. But what we have seen over the past year or a bit over a year was an unprecedented cut in spending plans. So obviously spending CapEx in 2020 has crashed as it has in previous oil price crashes. But the companies and actually not just the private companies, but also the national oil companies, they all announced or most of them announced that they will cut spending going forward. So whenever you have a multi-year spending plan, those were drastically reduced. And so if you look at where supply is coming from for the next, let's say, five years or so, the quick return of OPEC supply will simply meet the rebound in demand. You're missing about 2 million barrels or so of supply from the U.S. shale producers, which haven't come back at all, even with an increased rig count. So even if demand doesn't go back to the old highs, I think that's probably roughly will, will balance the market. And then if demand continues to grow, it's going to be interesting where that supply over the next five years is coming from. OPEC is probably not really growing much anymore for the next five years. And the U.S. shale oil producers, after the crash in 2014-15, they actually all came back roaring with production when prices came back. This time, they have shown a lot of restraint of bringing back that production. I mean, prices are back where they were by the end of 19 by now. And as you pointed out, recount has increased, but production hasn't. And because the U.S. shale sector has an issue with very high decline rates, even as recounts increase, production doesn't. So we actually don't think that even with the recount doubling from the lows, they cannot keep production flat until the end of the year. So the recount actually has to grow even more over the next couple of months to keep production flat. And then the most interesting area is the non-OPEC sector that isn't U.S. shale oil, because there, most of the projects that have been sanctioned over the last 10, 15 years have come online now, and there's very little left that comes online. And we actually have looked at this and we we thought about, in, in 19, we thought 2020 is the last year with non-OPEC supply growth. And then from 2021 onwards, going forward, you actually see outright declines in non-OPEC. What this pandemic has done, it really pulled that timeline forward. So in 2020, we already saw a decline. And we think going forward, we're going to see much sharper declines. And the reason there is really that these companies are now focusing on a very different future where we're trying to become greener. I think this is really a strong topic that we have seen and, and it's really something that has accelerated in 2020. And oil companies have, most of them, the big ones have publicly announced that they would become greener. They have done that in the past, but this probably was more public relations than anything. But now what has changed is really that the interests have aligned between, I would say, politics, Wall Street, and the energy companies. So the major oil companies, they're all trying to become utilities in a way. They all want to go in the, into the power sector and into the renewable space. And they're facing an interesting dilemma that they actually know that we need oil projects sanctioned to meet the growing demand over the next five to 10 years. But whatever they invest in is coming online at the end of that time period. And then it's going to be online for the next 30 years when we actually finally see a demand peak and declining demand. So they're not making this investment for that. The prices are way too low. So... To come back to your original question, I fully agree that at the moment, there's no shortage of oil. Uh, that's completely artificial. And if prices go higher, OPEC can bring on the tap anytime, at least until the end of the year. But thereafter, the reality kicks in that 
there has been some tremendous damage done to future supply growth on the back of this uh, pandemic. That's fascinating. And I probably should have started with the, the more precise question. Stefan, what will WTI be in six months and 12 months from now? <laughs> then I should have asked you to back it up with your view of what's going on in the market. So based on what you're saying, what, what's your what's your general sense of where oil is headed today? WTI is about $62 a barrel. Brent is $5 or so higher than that. So um, what's your forecast? Yeah, so maybe I take a quick detour and basically I just lay out what the way I model oil prices, the way I understand oil prices form is that there is an, an anchor point at the back end of the curve and that it reflects the future cost of marginal supply. And that is the part that should eventually move, but doesn't at the moment. <laughs> and then the price of WTI or the price of Brent is then simply the shape of the forward curve. So uh, is the curve in contango or is it in backwardation? Uh, so a backwardated curve is when the 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 spot price, the prompt price is higher than the future price. And a curve in contango is, is when the prompt price is below the future price. And at the moment, we have a very steep backwardation, meaning the prices are high on the prompt and then they get gradually lower. And such a curve is usually only present when you have very low inventories. And at the moment, you don't have low inventories at all. You actually have very high inventories. So what the market currently does, it prices in that inventories are going to rapidly decline over the next six months so that this type of curve is justified. But at the moment, it is not. So at the moment, the curve actually should be in contango. And if the curve would be in contango, it would be $10 lower. So that's kind of the conundrum here. But we're also facing something that we have never faced before. We have a really a huge shortage in the market right now because OPEC keeps that production offline. So I think over the next six months or so, we're probably going to ease into that price. I think in six months, we're going to see the price we're seeing in the prompt. But in the meantime, there could actually be a substantial correction to the downside if the market realizes that it really is pricing in a relatively distant future. And if at, for some reason production comes back, for example, because the US struck a deal with Iran, we could relatively quickly reprice that curve. But I guess in six months or so, I would say that price is fair. Mm -hmm. How secure is the political relationship between Saudi and its partners in trying to restrain production. And obviously, Russia is a big part of this as well. How, how do you currently interpret the politics of those cutback decisions? I mean, for us that work in the industry, the level of restraint OPEC has shown and the level of compliance is nothing but spectacular. I think nobody would have expected that level of compliance for such a long time. They're now compliant for almost a full year at very low prices. And a lot of smaller OPEC producers are really hurting with these type of prices. So the fact that they could actually last that long is really amazing. What has changed now is that OPEC for the first time, and probably there was a bit of pressure from the US as well, decided to bring back some of its production. And you always had two blocks. You basically had core OPEC, which is Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Kuwait, led by Saudi Arabia, which had a very hawkish stance on the issue and was very reluctant to bring production back and wanted to cut. And then on the other side, you had the OPEC plus members, which wanted to bring production back and they were led by Russia. So now with this uh, decision to actually gradually bring a little bit of the production back over the next two months, I think you're probably going to see a little bit more cracks in that relationship. And I could imagine that some of the non-core OPEC states and some of the plus states actually start to produce more than they would be allowed to. And given where prices are and how stable they have been, even after the announcement that they're bringing some of the production back, they probably feel not too worried about it. 
that their action could lead to a renewed sell-off. So I, I think going forward, there's probably a little bit less cohesion within the group than it was before. It's not that they are best friends or they ever have been best friends. They just basically, <laughs> they saw that there is just no other choice, that the demand destruction is so large that they have to work together. Otherwise, they are in much deeper trouble. Mm-hmm. We're sticking uh, with the politics for a moment. The Wall Street Journal today has a headline about Russia amassing troops on the Ukraine border. The last time Vladimir Putin marched into Crimea, I believe it was 2014, around the same time that oil reached its peak. If we see more tensions imminent in Russia, does that have an impact, do you think, on the price of oil and the price of gas? Probably more so on the price of gas than on the price of oil. The thing is really that the shifts in demand and supply are so enormous that smaller changes in that really don't matter anymore. Like for oil analysts, it's extremely hard to even know where we are right now. We don't actually know what how much demand is, and we don't really know how much supply is. I hope we're not paying oil analysts very much if they don't know where supply or demand is, Stefan. The data actually you have in the largest commodity market in the world is quite terrible. <laughs> we have almost no information, uh, real-time information on supply and demand. We can follow inventory changes in some countries and mostly in the OECD countries relatively real-time. So the U.S. has probably the best data in the world and we get weekly data. The rest of the world doesn't have that. We rely on IEA data. A lot of this data is two, three months old, and it's not very good. It's continuously revised. So the fact that this is such a huge part of the global economy, it's actually quite frightening how bad the data is. I'm heading a team that is doing research in the European power markets, and that's night and day what kind of data you have there. You have like real-time data. (laughs) And we wish in the oil markets we would have this kind of data. It's really difficult. And when it moves so much, I'll give you an example. When somebody talks about demand, nobody knows what demand really is. Because in order to measure demand, you would have to measure each car of like a billion cars in the world, how much they're consuming, and we can't do that. And then you would think that, well, okay, we measure simply what they sell at the gas station, or we don't do that either. So when you ever see a demand number, what you actually see is there is a production number, which to some extent is an estimate as well, and it's not very real time. And then they simply deduct the changes in the inventories. And then they say, well, this is demand. And they do this on a bottom-up level. And when you taking, you basically, the IEA, when they report their demand data, they're looking at each country individually They do this bottom-up approach, and then they give you a balance table. And there is an error term that is so large that if we would have to rely on this, it would be the difference between whether we sell or buy futures (laughs) right now. So it's it's that bad. So it's bad in during normal times, but when you have fluctuations in demand of plus minus twenty (laughs) percent, it's really bad at the moment. (laughs) So. If you see changes on the supply side, usually, for example, when you had headlines like you had this week, that there is some production from Libya offline, a few hundred thousand barrels because over labor disputes, that you really used to move the market a lot. And at the moment, it's just a small drop in an ocean because we just don't know where we are at. So I think at some point, probably, hopefully, at the, in the second half of the year, we're getting a better picture actually where supply and demand is. And then we can we can go back to normal in my space and, and actually start doing proper analysis again. Right now, we're basically trying to estimate like by what enormous number demand could come back if most people are vaccinated in Europe and in the US. There were stories in former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan's career where essentially... He would sit 
on the side of railroad lines and count how many rail cars went by. And then he'd make his estimate on demand for industrial goods based on rail car loadings. And he'd take notes as he'd watch the trains go by. So it seems like all these years later, based on what you're saying, and excuse the pun, our tools are as crude as they might have been 60 or 70 years ago, engaging supply and demand. Well, that's fascinating. It does mean if someone comes up with a better method, they'll retire young and retire rich. Maybe I can say a word to this. I mean, the, the methods are standard to become more digital, but because of the lack of actual data, there are companies out there that do exactly that. They're using more high-tech stuff to actually provide data to the industry. So they're using satellite data to track ships. There are companies, they focus mostly on the US. There are companies that measuring basically the electromagnetic field of power lines going into pumping station at pipelines. And then they back out a number of how much crude is flowing through that pipeline. But there is some limitation to how much you can cover with this, because you can imagine there's like thousands of pipelines in the world, and a lot of them are in countries where you can't just go and measure electromagnetic fields of power lines. So these methods are more restricted to places in the U.S. And interestingly, that opens up trading around specific crude hubs where you have a lot more data. So there's, for instance, there's a lot more data around for the crucial hub of Cushing, Oklahoma, which is the point of delivery for the WTI contract. So there you have a lot more data than, for instance, for flows on the Brent market. Getting back to the issue of big oil and big oil, oil companies and trying to diversify and wean themselves in some way, is there any future for frontier exploration at this point? Companies like Schlumberger and Apache and others who had been out in the fields and had rich contracts from the Exxons and the Chevrons of the world. What do you see happening to those companies and to the business they're in? Yeah, there's definitely, eventually there's demand for this because either oil companies are now going back and sanctioning projects that we have enough oil um, in a few years, or we facing a massive supply shortage in a few years, and then there will be another bonanza. I guess if we just do nothing or if the oil sector does nothing and we are running into supply issues a few years down the road, the one place that can grow faster than anything else is the U.S. shale sector. And obviously that can come back if you have substantially higher prices. It seems that at current prices around $60, these companies stick to what they have been telling to their investors and to the banks that give them credit, that they are focusing now on profitability overgrowth. But if prices are over $100, that can quickly reverse and they can grow relatively fast. It's the only place in the world where you can just grow oil capacity. Um, everything else needs years of investment. So eventually their services will be needed again, yeah. And it could be fascinating if, if this takes place in the next year or two, fascinating for the Joe Biden administration, because the administration obviously wants to get reelected in 2024. It needs votes in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Oklahoma and would like to win Texas, places that would be favorable for shale. At the same time, environmentalists have a lot of sway within the Biden administration. And when you look at the Biden agenda on economic policy, it's been much more progressive than what most people expected. And you see that because famed Democratic economists like Larry Summers are on the outs criticizing. And those who are in favor of bigger spending, bigger welfare programs, stricter environmental rules seem to have more authority. So what I'm saying is this scenario whereby the oil markets may need more shale because prices uh, go up will really lead, I think, to a kind of internal debate, perhaps crisis within the White House and the Democratic Party. By crisis, I mean a political crisis as it decides whether it's going to align itself 
with many voters and many workers in those states I mentioned, or whether it is going to stay and hold the progressive line that it's taken in the first couple of months. So that'll be that'll be fascinating. I, I did want to turn attention now to this topic of decarbonization. Mike Wirth, the CEO of Chevron, had said his mandate now is, quote, higher returns and lower carbon. We see a strong commitment, it seems, to decarbonization on a global scale. What do you think's brought that about? What's changed and, and where do you think we go? We had, a, there was a, a focus basically in one, in one region. The European Union was actually, has been committed to decarbonization for, for quite some time now. It introduced the EU emission trading system in 2005. And it's focused mainly on the power sector and emissions from the power sector are down drastically over over 40% actually over the time frame. So the European Union has been doing that and it has been doing that by expanding its renewables capacity quite dramatically over the past years and it's exiting the coal-fired power production. But the rest of the world has not. I mean, you look at... China and China actually has more renewable capacity now online than Europe has, but China increased its renewable capacity because they just needed more electricity, not because they were phasing out of coal. It was quite the opposite. Well, China has more of everything. Any topic you can you can mention, China leads the discussion. They probably have more coal and more renewable. They probably, if you ask me, where's the world's tallest person, I'd say China. If you ask me, where's the world's smallest dog, I'd say China. If you ask me where the world's best Chinese food is, I probably wouldn't say China, but there's no doubt that they're leading the world in all sorts of things, good and bad. Yeah, so I, I think what has changed probably over over the last 12 months, and obviously the change in the White House is part of this, is that this, I would say, this push towards a decarbonization of the global economy has a lot more uh, support now. Uh, than it had before. And part of that is that the desire for sort of an infrastructure bill, some sort of spending bill to come out from the economic destruction during the pandemic and from the lockdowns, this actually fits very well, right? So it's basically like you kill two birds with one stone. On one hand, you make the economy greener. And on the other hand, you found something where you want to spend your money on. Plus, there is another factor as well, and that is that some of the renewables are actually very cheap. Solar is it has become extremely cheap. In some parts of Europe, in the southern parts, solar is by far the cheapest way to build new power production. And with current carbon emission prices, which also have been going up over the past month, other renewables like wind look actually not so bad either. So there's definitely also an economic incentive. Plus, it seems that at least the world of finance fully embraces this. It's very hard for us to see that this is not going to happen. Europe has fully committed to it. They're going ahead with it. China will continue to grow its renewables and probably will eventually replace some of the coal. And it looks like we're going in the same direction in the U.S. as well. So I think this is actually, this is going to happen. How do you look at the issue of solar and wind and reliability and the need for backup? For instance, I, I don't know whether you've got a view of what took place in the state of Texas. And, and if you do, please explain to our listeners the the question of the sort of deregulated system and wind began to fail because of the weather and then gas they pushed on the accelerator to have natural gas make up for that then gas couldn't do the trick so this question of renewables that are so cheap but not necessarily as dependable how how are we supposed to think about that first of all as citizens and secondly as investors First of all, I just have to say ahead that we are like in my company, we're trading European power and European gas. So we are actually not so familiar with the, the US market. So I, I can't 
deep dive into what happened in Texas. But generally, it's quite obvious if you have renewables, it's very different from a coal-fired power plant where you have a scheduled maintenance at some point, you take it offline. There's always something that can happen to a plant and unexpectedly, and then it comes offline and it has a price impact because something else actually has to fire up instead. The same can happen to a nuclear power plant. But with renewables, it's quite obvious when the wind is not blowing, then you produce no wind power. And if the sun is like in the night, you're not producing any solar power. And so in Europe, the renewables are so successful that in Germany, 45% of the power produced last year was already from renewable sources. Some of it is hydro, some of it is biomass, which can be controlled, but 52% was from wind and another 20% was from solar. So what Europe has been doing, it's really replacing mostly coal and in the future more and more nuclear as well with renewable sources which are very dependent on the weather. And so we need to find a way to bridge those times when there's no wind or there's no sun. And an elegant way to do this is with hydro, but the hydro capacity is just limited and you can't really build it out much. So you need another way to bridge that gap. And if you look at the storage solution, there's two potential ways how you could store electricity. One would be with batteries. So if you actually can make that economical to build large batteries, so warehouses full of batteries, at the moment when we look at this, this doesn't seem to be something that we are seeing before probably 2030. And the other one would be with hydrogen, so that you're producing hydrogen from wind power when electricity prices are extremely cheap. So when you have very high wind, for example, Germany produces more electricity than they consume. So in that, in those times, prices go to zero or negative. You could actually use that electricity and produce hydrogen and then either use it in a transportation sector or use it to produce electricity later again. An elegant solution, but first of all, we're not there yet. We probably need higher carbon prices to make it economical and it's still a few years out. And even then, there's a limit to how much you can actually grow that solution. So the only way actually to cover the times when you have no renewable electricity production is with natural gas. And that's what we have been doing in Europe. And that will probably be the solution at least for the next 10 years all over the world. Are you surprised with the speed with which automobile companies are now announcing that they will be entirely electric within not decades, but basically one decade? Yes. And I think they will be facing some challenges to achieve this. Just to put all these numbers into context, the world has right now about a billion passenger cars. And there is probably another 200 million or so of trucks. And before the pandemic, so 2020 obviously is different, but before the pandemic, globally, we produced around 80, 80 plus million vehicles every year. And in 2019, 2 million of those were electric in some form that is not full EVs that includes all hybrids. That actually, when I saw this number, I was surprised how low it is because I would have expected that there are more hybrid vehicles. I guess that's because I live in Switzerland and every every second car is a hybrid vehicle. But apparently on a global scale, they're not as popular. And so at the moment, we're producing 2 million a year and there is a global inventory of 7 million compared to a billion other cars. <laughs> and yes, the rate at which that has been growing over the past year has been really impressive. But in order to make a difference that, for example, oil demand is no longer growing, you would have to grow this to probably 40, 50 million units because we retire about 40, 50 million a year. And so net, the world adds about 40 million cars a year to the global car fleet. So why can companies not just scale up what they have? Well, the problem is 
you need an entire set of materials to make an electric car compared to a car with an internal combustion engine. A normal, a regular car that consumes gasoline is mostly made of steel. But a car with batteries and wires and everything has a lot of metals that will soon be in very short supply. So as a rule of thumb, a hybrid car uses about twice as much copper as a regular car. A fully electric car uses four times the amount of copper than a regular car. Uh, that's nothing compared to how much rare earth, lithium, molybdenum, you name it. Um, there's all kinds of metals that at the moment are used for entirely different purposes. And going forward, you will would have to see an enormous amount of production growth in these metals to satisfy all the demand from the car industry. And you should never bet against an engineer with enough money and enough time. Eventually, they will find a way to substitute these metals with something else, and they will find a better battery technology, and they will do this and that. But also, that will take time. So at the moment, I'm skeptical about these numbers. I think they want to do it, but there will be hard limits of how fast this can grow. Let's uh, Hypothetically, let's say that virtually every new car is EV. What does that do for demand for power for electricity and demand for, say, natural gas to fuel the electrical power plants that then provide the power that people get when they plug their EV into their wall? That's a good question. I mean, at the current rate, how the EV fleet is growing, I think it's not an issue. But if you're really starting to grow this globally at this rate, um, there will be a lot more power demand from the transportation sector, which at the moment is entirely met with fossil fuels. So that is in addition to the phase out of fossil fuel power plants you will actually see an increase in demand as well from the transportation sector, and that will be meaningful. So there is a really a number of challenges. Again, like give people enough time and money and they will figure it out and they will build it. But even now in Europe, for example, we have an issue of building out the power line infrastructure, so the interconnectors between the different regions. Because you're seeing, for example, a lot of renewables are being built in the Nordic regions and that electricity then is supposed to flow down to the south. And we tend to use to, to look at Europe as a copper plate where everything can just flow. But if you then start fiddling around and demand is growing a lot faster than you expected it because um, you're electrifying the transportation system then you need even more investments there. So there's definitely going to be a prolonged time of challenges for both the, the car and the power industry. And what is the role of LNG? And is LNG an environmental, well, for lack of a better word, winner? And again, speaking from a U.S. perspective, I see that the Biden administration is a little bit schizophrenic about it. It likes to talk about... LNG and President Obama had been in favor of getting exports going. And then certainly under President Trump, Rick Perry, the uh, Department of Energy secretary, called it freedom gas at one point and boasted that it provided U.S. allies with a cleaner source of energy. At the same time, there are those who are concerned on the environmental side about uh, methane and LNG. So how do, how do you perceive LNG? And, and, and tell us a little bit about how you're participating in that trade. So, I mean, what we're clearly seeing is that if you want to continue to build out renewable energy, if you want to replace uh, coal-fired power plants in Europe with renewable sources, you will have to rely on natural gas. Otherwise, you can just not build it out as fast as you want. So it's natural gas is actually necessary to, to become greener. And obviously, burning natural gas is a lot more environmentally friendly than burning coal. The problem we have is the places where you grow renewable energy and the places where you produce gas there is a growing mismatch. Europe for a long time relied on its own natural gas and the rest it imported from Russia. But domestic 
gas production is now declining, especially from the Netherlands, but from other places as well. And Russian gas has its own issues and is unlikely to be increasing over the coming years. So Europe necessarily has to rely on imports of LNG. But at the same time, Europe is competing with Asia for LNG because Asia, and predominantly we're talking here about China, is just expanding its power sector. So in China, it's not even that they need more gas to tackle the same issue Europe does, even though China's expansion in the renewables is dwarfing anybody in the world, (laughs) but they simply need more power. And so China will produce power from whatever they can. And LNG is something they like. So Europe will basically compete with Asia for LNG for the coming, for the foreseeable future. And if you look at the past five years or so, globally, if you take the US out, globally, gas production was roughly flat, with Europe declining and some places increasing, but Europe's hunger increasing and Asia's hunger increasing. And the entire gap has been filled with the US. And so the US built this LNG infrastructure and most of that has now come online and that really helped to balance the global market. So this would have been a problem for Europe if it wouldn't get that gas. I mean, obviously it changes every year. Like a year can be, like one year can be very different from the previous one depending on weather. But overall, if you look at it smoothed out, Europe depends on that LNG and Asia will depend on that LNG as well. What is now a little bit the issue is that all the projects that were in the pipeline, they are now done. So that gas, that LNG, those terminals, they are online now. And so for the next couple of years, there's actually not really meaningful capacity coming online. And so it will be a fight between Europe and Asia for that LNG. And then thereafter, hopefully, LNG shipments are going to grow again. I mean, they've been growing tremendously. Like LNG shipments were up 11% on average for the past five years or so, with the exception of 2020, which was obviously different. So no other energy commodity has seen that kind of growth. It was really spectacular. And probably at some point we need that back. And are there new sources of LNG that could be coming online? What, what is the capacity of the U.S. to produce additional LNG? In the U.S., really, the question is not so much the gas. The question is really the terminals. So terminals have to be built to export it. The U.S. shale gas industry is, in my view, very different from the U.S. shale oil industry. Shale gas is not plagued by the same decline rates as oil is. So shale gas actually doesn't need the same prices as shale oil needs because it just doesn't need the same amount of constant drilling just to offset the declines. So in the US, it really depends. I mean, you you need to give the drillers just an incentive to produce the gas. That's not an issue at all. But they're not going to develop if, if there is no export terminals. They need to ship it somewhere. So that is really the bottleneck, that you get uh, those projects sanctioned that the export sector can grow. A few years ago, when oil and gas prices were extremely high and shale was being developed as quickly as possible, there are many stories throughout the world about the sort of mini earthquakes that might have been created as a result of drilling. What is the status of that discussion scientifically and from an investor point of view? It's certainly, it hasn't been on the forefront of investors' minds. I personally haven't followed this that closely. There has been increased seismic activity in these regions. So far, there has never been anything happened that basically be frontline and would warrant a complete halt in production. I mean, it's certainly a risk. I think it's a tail risk. And given how much the world depends on shale oil and shale gas at this point, if something like this would be happening and the administration would basically say, well, this has to be stopped right now and we we have to look into this, I mean, that would be an absolutely enormous impact on prices that would be... uh, unimaginable at this point. I'm not a geologist, so I can't say how likely that is. As I said, I mean, 
shale gas has been developed a long, long time ago. Shale oil is around for over 10 years now. And we haven't had an incident where something was so dramatic that there would have been a, a political reaction to it. So, yeah, I, I would say it's probably possible, but the likelihood seems small. We'll know because there'll be a spate of Hollywood movies devoted to some fictitious disaster. You know, you mentioned a long time, 10 years. I remember when I was a kid back when Ronald Reagan was debating Jimmy Carter in 1980. And the debate was about whether there was any oil or gas left in the United States or in the world. And Ronald Reagan, in his folksy way in the presidential debates, said, well, you know, some geologists tell me that we have shale oil and gas and enough to last us for many decades to come. And at the time, most of the journalists covering the presidential election looked at Reagan as if he was some sort of Neanderthalic moron. How could you not know that the world has run out of fossil fuels? And that was 40 years ago. And now the issue is, as you say, with LNG, not where is the fuel, but how do we get the ships and the terminals built so that we can transport the fuel that clearly does exist? Um, in our remaining time, Stefan, I, I wanted to uh, bring up a couple of the other fuels that we should touch on. Let's start with hydrogen. You had mentioned that hydrogen could be a byproduct or at least used in conjunction uh, with excess wind energy. How, do you, how are you looking at hydrogen as a, a fuel of the future? First of all, you have to differentiate between the types of hydrogen we're talking about. There is different types. There's green hydrogen that is the type of hydrogen that is really produced with excess electricity from a renewable source. And if you want to build a hydrogen industry, and that should help to mitigate carbon emissions, then that's the only way to go. <laughs> the thing is, right now, all the hydrogen is produced is produced from natural gas. So you're taking one fuel and you're producing something that when you actually use it in a car, yes, it doesn't emit anything, but you're using a lot of natural gas for it. So maybe hydrogen has to follow a similar path where in order to get it going, you actually have to rely on something that is not really 100% climate friendly and might actually be even negative compared to something like gasoline. But then you actually would build the technology, you will build out the infrastructure, and then you could in the end shift to green hydrogen. This is just, I mean, at the moment, this is not set in stone at all. I mean, it could be that we never get to the point where you're using hydrogen. It could be that this is the future. This is one of the potential avenues we could go where we could turn electricity from renewables into something we can store. It could be used in the transportation sector, but there is a lot of other things other than battery power cars that you could use in the transportation sector as well. You could actually use electricity to produce methanol or something like this and then use it in a car. So there's a lot, a lot of technologies out there. And at the moment, there is clearly a focus on hydrogen. So we see this like a lot of countries and in the European Union, especially, they're announcing that there is investment and there is a strategy to push hydrogen forward. But whether hydrogen is in the end the technology that takes over this is still very unclear. Hmm. And how about the nuclear industry? There was a time, of course, where nuclear energy was the energy of the future. And throughout France and many countries, nuclear was embraced. And obviously, we've come to know issues about nuclear waste and storage and other events that could take place that would scar the industry and perhaps scar not just neighborhoods, but states and provinces and so on when there have been the disaster from time to time. Chernobyl, of course, is the preeminent example. But what is the state of the industry? What do you think nuclear will be looking like 20, 40 years from now? Because nuclear does seem to be, if safe, a cleaner version than most competitors. Yeah, again, I, it depends really on the region. 
Europe is on a clear path of switching off its nuclear power plants. Germany decided that and uh, is going forward with it. I, I don't see any indication that this is changing anytime soon. So they're not just not building new ones, but they're switching the ones off that they have. Given that they so far they have been doing really fine with building out the renewables, there is also, I don't see anything in the immediate future that would change that political view. But there are countries that embracing nuclear power. China, for example, is building it. There are other emerging markets that are actually expanding their nuclear fleet. It's In the Western world, it just takes a very, very long time to get a project sanctioned, then going through all the instances and then getting it built and bringing it online, right? So I think in order to secure future electricity supply, that's probably not what we're going to rely on. Simply for that reason, we need to build out something now. And and I think given how much costs have come off in renewables, it's going to be renewables. But as I said, that requires that we're probably going to use gas for quite some time. Otherwise, it doesn't work. But that's like a proven way of actually getting it done. At least in Europe, that's the way forward. If you look at, for instance, the estimates, how much China is building out their nuclear fleet compared to renewables, they're also building mostly renewables. It just can be deployed very, very quickly. And it comes with all the challenges, yes. But that's something that makes the future interesting, how to tackle those challenges. And Stefan, in our remaining minutes, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing personally. And also, I'd like to know, as, as you being one of the great experts in the energy field, what is it that you read each day or each week? Listeners who want to become more educated uh, in the energy sector, what should they be keeping an eye on? And, and what are some of the reliable or, if not reliable, entertaining outlets in order to stay apprised of the markets? Yeah, um, throughout my career, I have switched a little bit. Of I, I was always in commodities <laughs> for the past uh, 20 plus years. I've been in commodities, mostly in, in oil. But I used to be what is called an investment analyst. So I worked in the financial industry and I was writing reports for clients and investors and talked to people in the industry. And there probably had more a more longer term focus. So uh, we would have to think about the things we just talked about for the last hour and yeah, analyze the data, run our models, etc. In my current function, we are very much trading focused. So we have probably a much shorter time horizon. And while we need to understand these longer term fundamental changes, what really our focus is, is the next three to 12 months or so. So what we are really trying to figure out is how certain things change over that time frame. And you would you would do that depends a bit on what commodity you're looking at, but on the oil side you would run run a supply and demand model for the specific location or the specific commodity you're you're looking at. So for example, you would run a a supply and demand model you would try to predict pipeline flows and refinery demand for Cushing, Oklahoma. And that would give me a view on whether inventories in Cushing are rising or declining over the next three months. And depending on that, then the traders would take a position on. So for example, if we believe that inventories would be rising and we look at the forward curve in WTI oil, we would take a position that is short that time spread. That's kind of the type of analysis we're doing. So we really kind of every day we look what changes, we look at the data every day and try with as much sophistication as we can predict the future. <laughs> and as I said, it's not always easy. Data in our industry is not as good as what people would think, but that's also the interesting part. I mean, if you get better data, however you're doing, you're ahead of the pack. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets featuring Stefan Wieler. Next week, I will be back for my second episode as we continue to explore the transition to carbon neutrality with Arjun Murthy. 
Arjun has been analyzing the global energy market for nearly 30 years and spent over 20 years as an equity research analyst and partner of Goldman Sachs. He currently serves as a senior advisor to the Energy Group at Warburg Pincus, is on the board of directors of ConocoPhillips, and is an advisory board member at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. We look forward to crossing the intersection of energy, ESG, and the global economy next week. I'm Todd Buchholz. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.